0: We'll be lucky if we can hold down to two C. Current trends are, according to the best scientific analyses, are rising maybe to close to three degrees centigrade, which is that can have utterly catastrophic effects. And if the Republicans come back into office as they might, that may be the end. Remember, they're all denialists. So if they're in power again. That means the most powerful country in the world will be racing to the precipice, dragging others along with it.
1: That's Noam Chomsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Noam Chomsky on racing to the precipice. The warnings about the climate emergency are coming in fast and furious yet public awareness and political action remain at a low level. The latest report is from the World Meteorological Organization, a UN agency. Its director said, The impacts of climate change are often felt through water. More intense and frequent droughts, more extreme flooding, more erratic seasonal rainfall, and accelerated melting of glaciers, with cascading effects on economies, ecosystems, and all aspects of our daily lives. There's an urgent need for collective action to avoid irreversible tipping points. Meanwhile, The Guardian reports fossil fuel corporations are making astronomical amounts of money. Politically, the mitigation measures taken so far are woefully inadequate. People are distracted. They know more about the World Cup than the climate crisis. Our guest today is Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar activist. He's been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. The new statesman calls him the conscience of the American people. I talked with him in late November. Well, good to see you again. Welcome to the program.
0: Glad to be with you again, as always.
1: Your views on the midterm elections. You know, pundits were predicting a major Democratic defeat, but they managed to hold on to the Senate and they barely lost the House. What does 2024 look like? The midterms, as you say, were not as devastating as
0: had been expected. But I should say I didn't find them particularly encouraging. Some of the Republicans who lost, lost by a hair, and it's amazing that they could even run when you look at their programs. People like Carrie Lake, uh, Lake Masters in Arizona, uh, Vance, it's hard to imagine that these could be candidates in a serious functioning democracy. That includes some who won. I think you're probably in the uh, district or close to it. Well, let's take that. As far as I can tell, her one campaign slogan is showing off how many guns she has. If there's anything else, I've missed it. How this can even happen in a more or less functioning democracy is astonishing. And it's very bad news about 2024. Another bad sign was the Democrats lost even more of the working class than before. Since the 70s, they've been becoming a party of affluent professionals, handing over working people to their class enemy, and it's continuing even more in the last election unless they can reverse this, and they can, I think, but unless they do, I think, the prospects are not pleasant, especially because we know it's not a secret. Republicans have made it very clear that their contempt for democracy is so extreme that they're going to use whatever methods they have, legislative, judicial, Uh, to try to ensure that they can remain in power indefinitely as a servant to the extreme rich and corporate sector. And it might work.
1: What about the Democrats uh, fielding another candidate other than Biden?
0: I don't think that's the real issue, frankly. I mean, maybe they can find somebody who's more charismatic or whatever. But the real issue, I think, is what I just mentioned. If the Democrats insist on being a party of affluent professionals, Wall Street donors, uh, they're not going to be able to be a, a, a fit contender or even the kind of party that should be a fit contender. To Biden's credit, he tried to reverse this, actually his policies, domestic policies at least foreign policy is a different story, but his domestic policies were more oriented towards what the Democrats ought to be and used to be a party that some concern for working people and the poor. He was more in that direction than his predecessors back to Johnson, maybe back to Roosevelt. He couldn't get anywhere because of a hundred percent Republican opposition, couple of right-wing Democrats joined. So the policies, which were in many ways pretty reasonable by U.S. standards, uh, were just cut back to almost nothing. And the Democrats didn't run on them. They weren't committed to them.
1: As winter looms, where are we with the pandemic? In China, there's a record spike in COVID cases with attendant lockdowns and pushback from the population? Well, it's kind of
0: interesting to see that the discussion here is overwhelmingly about the problems of COVID in China. It's true, yes, there's a peak. Uh, For a couple of days, China reached uh, something similar to the United States, although not really similar per capita. Remember, China has four times the population, so a fraction of the United States. If you look at the records of COVID statistics, Johns Hopkins is the main source, you find that there are charts of lots of data on countries. China's just not on the charts because it's so much better than everyone else. It barely appears on the charts, almost no deaths as compared with enormous numbers of deaths elsewhere, the United States is one of the worst. So let's talk about China and what's wrong with China. Again, the United States is one of the worst uh, per capita deaths. China is so few deaths that it's barely on the chart. Washington Post this morning has another story, usual story about the problems of COVID in China. Read it. It mentions that since May, they have just had their first death. Does that sound like the United States? Plenty of problems in China, no doubt. But it's of, no, not, it's of some interest, perhaps, that we're concentrating on China, not us. Part of the reason is that when China locks down, it cuts back the profits of U.S. multinationals who are producing in China. They want those factories open, doesn't matter how many people die. Well, not a very good reason, no. Maybe their policies are wrong, maybe they should be improved, could debate that. But it seems as if we're debating a footnote and missing the topic we should be discussing. What about the United States with one of the world's worst records? And every reason why it should be the best country of all with its resources and wealth and so on. That's the scandal and it's getting worse. There are expectations of an increase in the pandemic this coming winter. The vaccinations are far too low. Many people are refusing vaccination, their choice. That means hospitals are full with COVID patients Overwhelmingly unvaccinated, can't carry out routine procedures, gives the virus more of a chance to mutate. There's much less spending. Spending has been sharply cut on what has to be done. So, for example, take nasal sprays. Those are promising techniques. And there's a little bit of work on them from the government. The big pharmaceutical corporations aren't interested expensive, cuts into their profits, if they work, it means less for what they've already produced. So as usual, the government is stepping in, but nowhere near adequately. There are ideas, whether they can work or not, we don't know. There are ideas about a universal vaccine, which would cut off the mutations of the virus at the source. Well, can it work? maybe. ought to be a major topic of a a major uh, budgetary item to fund it, since it's far-reaching and basic. Private corporations aren't going to bother with it. They want profit. But as usual, that means state efforts. Actually, something like Warp Speed, which did work, Uh, but that's declining. Republicans won't fund it. Democrats aren't pushing it. So, we're moving into more dangerous territory. We know how to avoid it, but we can't because we're devoted. Uh, We have priorities for our social and economic system. The way it works are different. Actually, I should mention that there was an interesting sensible proposal a little while ago by 50, I think, Nobel Prize laureates who proposed that all governments around the world should cut back a fixed percentage equally for all of them, a fixed percentage on military expenditures. Since it's a fixed percentage for all, it wouldn't harm any of them relative to others. That would free up a huge amount of capital that's being developed to destruction. And instead, free it up to be used for things that have to be done. Global warming, pandemics, kind of things we've been talking about. I'm sure we've heard very little about the proposal. It's uh, dropped like a rock into the sea. Because it's too sensible to be contemplated in our social and political order.
1: What do you know about this uh, variant called RSV, affecting young children? Uh, it's on the increase in the United States.
0: Yes, and that will happen. Children's vaccinations are way below what they ought to be. Lots of parents are refusing the vaccination. There's a big anti-vax movement, which is having a pernicious effect. And if new things will be developing. We can't tell which, but we know there are many possibilities. The longer we delay, in eliminating or sharply reducing the threat, the worse it'll get, and this also holds for not providing vaccines to poor countries. First of all, it's horrible for them, but apart from that, it's horrible for us. It means a pool for new mutations, many which may be more lethal, may be uncontrollable, but you got to grab for yourself. Actually, I'm Reminded of a story that I was told recently about. It's apparently a story that comes from East Africa somewhere. The question is how do you kill, how do you capture a monkey? Uh, The way to capture a monkey, according to this story, is to take a coconut, make a hole in it that's just big enough for the monkey's paw to fit through, then put a couple of sugar cubes inside. The monkey reaches in, grabs the sugar cubes. His clenched fist can't come out. So it starves to death because it won't release the sugar cubes. That's us.
1: Let's talk about the climate emergency. Uh, your assessment of COP27 held in Sharm el Sheikh, Egypt.
0: It was an almost total disaster. I'm in the one saving grace was a promise, no plans, just a promise that the rich countries which are responsible for overwhelmingly for the crisis, and it's, it's a indescribable crisis, uh, they will pay some compensation to the poor countries which haven't created the crisis but are being destroyed by it. The plan was proposed. It was, as usual, put off for committees to work on. And maybe they'll have something by the next meeting. That's about it. It's hard to find any other rays of light there. Greta Thunberg knew what she was doing when she just stayed away.
1: What about the stated goal of holding temperature increases to 1.5 Celsius or 2.7 Fahrenheit? That's looking more and more remote. Uh, the Economist cover story uh, doesn't mince words. It says, say goodbye to 1.5 C. It's
0: a fair judgment, unfortunately. We'll be lucky if we can hold down to 2 C. Current trends are, according to the best scientific analyses, are rising maybe to close to 3 degrees centigrade, which is that can have utterly catastrophic effects. And if the Republicans come back into office, as they might, that may be the end. Remember, they're all denialists ever since 2009, when they were bought off by the Koch industries. So if they're in power again, that means the most powerful country in the world will be racing to the precipice, dragging others along with it. In fact, what's happening in the Western Hemisphere is pretty amazing. Anybody's looking at this from outer space, they'd be maybe laughing or maybe crying. I'm not sure what. Two most powerful countries in the Western Hemisphere are both on the verge of destroying the environment permanently, holding on to those pieces of sugar and not extricating their hands from the coconut. Brazil and the United States on the brink. It's very close, not that the alternatives are marvelous, but very close to power or structures, organizations that are dedicated to racing to the precipice as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, you talk about lemmings in human form that are driving us to the abyss. But let me um, also ask you about uh, what the Washington Post reported. I'm quoting here. COP 27, awash with fossil fuel representatives. Uh, More than 600 lobbyists were in attendance in Sharm el-Sheikh. That was a 25% increase over the last year's meeting in Glasgow, COP 26.
0: Well, it shows they're concerned. They're concerned that maybe something can happen. They were the second largest delegation. The largest was United Arab Emirates, which is 100% dedicated to destroying the world as quickly as possible, that's what they live on. So that's first and second, it was in, in Saudi Arabia, it was right behind, same goals, pouring huge amounts of money into trying to avert what has to be done, namely ending fossil fuels, step by step. They don't want that so assured, and in fact, their presence there I think uh, indicates their concern. The concern of the fossil fuel companies that the huge bonanza they're now celebrating uh, may not uh, last forever, and in fact, right now the euphoria in the fossil fuel industry means. The producers, the banks and others, it's just overwhelming. Matched only by arms producers. Profits are shooting through the sky.
1: UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, and I must say he has been consistently articulate and forceful uh, in describing the crisis facing humanity. Uh, He says, we have a choice collective action or collective suicide. Now, the question I have for you is, if the climate emergency doesn't get people's attention, what will? You'd think survival might be a motivator.
0: Maybe it'll take cities uh, collapsing underwater, uh, people unable to find water to drink, uh, hundreds of millions of people uh, Ranging the world, trying to find a place to survive, Uh, who knows what it'll take, takes particular cases. Let's take the region of the world which produces outside the United States, produces most of the poisons, fossil fuels, the Middle East region. There are recent projections showing that the expectations for the eastern Mediterranean region, have vastly underestimated the dangers. The latest studies indicate that by the end of the century, uh, temperatures in those regions may rise by maybe almost 10 degrees Fahrenheit. They're all already almost unlivable. That means for most people, you survive if you're in modern air conditioning. Uh, what happens to the rest of the population. Actually, Israeli uh, climate scientists really recently came out with a warning to the government that their latest studies and their good uh, indicate that by the end of the century, sea levels may have risen in the eastern Mediterranean by maybe two to two and a half meters, 10 feet or so. It's indescribable.
1: Let's talk about one of those wars, the war uh, in Ukraine and the dangerous situation of nuclear reactors, uh, one of which is Europe's largest, that could be hit intentionally or unintentionally. The consequences of that happening are simply too horrible to contemplate. But if there is no what is called an off-ramp for Putin and the war drags on and Russia faces a humiliating defeat, there's the possibility of using nuclear weapons, unthinkable as it is. The US-led NATO military alliance is pouring weapons into Ukraine like there's no tomorrow with the expressed intention to weaken Russia You know the old saw about a wounded bear who is trapped. Talk about the dangers the planet is facing in Ukraine. Well,
0: I can only repeat what I've been saying for almost a year. The conflict in Ukraine will either end by capitulation of one side or the other, or by some sort of a diplomatic settlement. Uh, That much is just logic. Uh, The chances of Russian capitulation I don't think are very high, Uh, but whatever you think about them, if there were ever an indication of Russian defeat in Ukraine, the question is what would Putin do? The United States has been taking a gamble. A ghastly gamble, holding that that we must continue the war, the official position is, we must continue the war to severely weaken Russia. And if Russia is facing defeat, what happens? Well, two possibilities. One, Putin will say, okay, defeat, I pack my bags, I go home quietly to oblivion or worse. It's one possibility. Other possibility, I use my conventional weapons. Forget nuclear, that's mostly Western talk. I use my conventional weapons to devastate Ukraine. Now, up till now, he hadn't been doing that, which greatly surprised US and British military analysts. They've been saying it. They're surprised, they expected that Russia would carry out a US-British style war. What you do is get it over with quickly. Go for the jugular, shock and awe. First thing you do, destroy everything that matters. Power, communication, transportation, water, energy, kind of like what Israel does in Gaza what the United States and Britain did in Iraq, just shut the place down. Well, oddly, surprising them, that's what they anticipated. That's where they were planning a government in exile for Zelensky right away. Well, to are surprise, he didn't do it. The longer you delay, more likely he is to do it. Now, Russia is beginning to do it. It's beginning to use its conventional weapons to shut down Ukraine. And these measures that Russia are now taking are bitterly condemned as criminal. The condemnation is correct. They are criminal. Shock and awe is a criminal enterprise. The criminality is being condemned by people who always accepted it on our part, maybe little peeps of uh, complaint here and there, but putting the gross hypocrisy aside, yes, the gamble is beginning to pay off the way you expect, cut off possibilities of negotiation, which is what US policy has been, chances are that Russia will turn to the kinds of methods that the US and Britain apply regularly, or Israel go for the jugular. That's conventional weapons could go beyond. So far, if you notice, almost all the talk about nuclear weapons is in the West. The Russians haven't said much about it, but it's real. Recently, some parts of an exploded missile fell across the Polish border. If it had been a Russian missile, well, maybe Article 5 of the NATO Treaty would come into play. We're often running. Maybe Russia will start uh, attacking NATO supply lines from Poland. Hasn't done so yet. If it does, we're up another step on the escalation ladder. That's why rational analysts, people like General Milley, head of the Joint Chiefs, a couple of weeks ago said, Got to stop this now. Once you start moving up the escalation ladder, there's no end. So the question is, shall we ensure that the war continues to severely weaken Russia at the risk of not only what happens to Ukraine, which could be devastating and is now beginning to be, uh, but also the risk that we'll move up to terminal nuclear war. It's quite apart from what in many ways is the most dangerous aspect of this continuation of the war namely the reversal of the limited efforts that were undertaken, being undertaken, to deal somehow with the climate crisis. Now it's going in the opposite direction. Let's try to maximize the use of fossil fuels, pouring funds into the pockets of the fossil fuel companies and pouring poisons into the air. Plans are being made now for decades decades of exploitation of new fields, new LNG terminals, uh, the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, which is getting much less attention than it should, means that Europe is pretty much cut off from Russian supplies, meaning turned to other uh, fossil fuel supplies, very profitable for the United States, which is happy to Export its fracked natural gas, uh, but with long term consequences that may, to go back to your earlier question, just drive us off the precipice. I'm not even mentioning the millions of people facing starvation in poor countries from the reduction of uh, exports of grain and fertilizers from the Black Sea region. Consequences are enormous. What Ukrainians decide to do is their business. We have no business telling them what to do. What we decide to do is our business. Shall we continue with an official policy that makes diplomacy impossible? That's our official policy. If you're fighting the war to severely weaken Russia, no diplomacy.
1: You're listening to Noam Chomsky. Racing to the Precipice. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program and for Chomsky's books, Chronicles of Dissent, and Notes on Resistance, call us 1 800 444 1977. Again, that's 1 800 444 Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternative radio. Rafael Mariano Grossi is the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, and he said very recently that the situation for nuclear safety and security in the country has become, that is Ukraine, has become increasingly precarious, challenging, and potentially dangerous. It's extremely concerning, he continued. All military action threatened the safety and security of Ukraine's nuclear facilities must stop immediately, Director General Grossi said. So that's coming from the U.N. agency that is uh, responsible for these reactors in terms of uh, oversight.
0: That he's right to be concerned about then. But even if that can be dealt with somehow, and that's a big question, the chances of moving on to a potential terminal war don't end because of these other things we've been discussing. It could be that you can easily invent scenarios which would lead up the, take the first step up the ladder of escalation, kinds of things that General Milley was worried about. You hear all kind of talk from American hawks about uh, uh, why don't we just uh, sink the black, Russian Black Sea Fleet? Yeah, can probably do it. And What happens then? Well, they tell you, don't worry. I promise you nothing's gonna happen. Not long ago, Francis Fukuyama came out with a statement saying, we don't have to worry about the Russian threats. It's all bluff, take my word for it. Canadian columnist, very good analyst, Linda McQuaig, writes for the Toronto Star, wrote a column saying this is the most stupid comment she's ever heard in her life, and she's heard very stupid ones over her life, and I think that's right. Here somebody says, don't worry about the Russians responding, I can take my word for it. They'll just be happy if the Black Sea Fleet sinks.
1: Moving on to uh, Iran, the uprising there is now in its third month. Tens of thousands of Iranians have taken to the streets across the country to protest the government's treatment of girls and women, and in particular, mandatory dress codes. The slogan of the protest movement is Zan Zandegi Azadi, woman, life, freedom. Women and girls have been in the forefront of this movement. Demonstrators are shouting death to the dictator. The Islamic Republic of Iran, now in its 43rd year, has never faced such sustained and widespread opposition. Can it remain in power? In an interview I did with Vijay Prashad recently, he said he didn't think that the government is going to fall. And he added, they have deeper reservoirs of support than you might think. What are your views on the situation in Iran?
0: Well, Vijay knows a lot more about Iran than I do, but I think there's reason to suspect that he's correct. We have very little information about what's happening in most of Iran. We know almost nothing about rural Iran, about poor working class areas in the major cities. What we know about it, which is pretty astonishing, is the uh, courage, extraordinary courage of the uh, uprising, mostly young people. Uh, According to leaked Iranian security documents, the average age of those detained is about 17 years old, much different from other protests young people, led by women, showing amazing courage and commitment to condemn the brutality of the regime. I mean, the focus is on dress, but it's much broader. Uh, the regime has, for 40 years, has been completely unable to run a viable economy, a viable society, just harshness and brutality. Now, they haven't been under ideal circumstances to put it pretty mildly as soon as the regime came into power 1980 uh, iraq invaded saddam hussein invaded with the strong support of the united states saddam was a great friend of the reagan administration the us gave enormous support even when iraq used chemical weapons hundreds of thousands of Iranians were killed. Uh, People like Khamenei who runs the place, that's their experience. Their experience is first of all, the terror of the Shah, the US backed Shah, the resistance then the US backed Iraqi invasion. After that came harsh sanctions. Uh, Trump escalated the sanctions as a punishment of the people of Iran for the United States pulling out of the joint agreement, Uh, Europe went along reluctantly. All of this has severely harmed the economy, but the rulers themselves have prime responsibility for creating a system of repression, violence, incompetence, corruption, and that's what the protests are against. The dress codes are the dramatic forefront of it, but it's far broader. And how much support there is for the regime, we really don't know. Could be kind of like what happened in Turkey. Go back to Gezi Park. It looked like the regime was almost on the brink of collapse, except that it turns out it had reservoirs of support from very conservative, traditional, highly religious, rural areas which they'll make it into social media. So, we don't know. That, I think, is probably what Vijay was talking about. We have to ask, we don't know, will the regime resort to large-scale, massive repression instead of the already fairly significant levels of repression? As far as has been reported, The most violent repression has been in ethnic areas, Baluchi, uh, Kurdish, and not in the center. Plenty of people have been killed in the center, but it's in the hundreds, not the thousands or tens of thousands. Well, the regime is plenty brutal. Uh, You go back to Khamenei's personal experience. It's quite possible that he accepts The judgment of uh, the Israeli ambassador, defective Israeli ambassador to Iran under the Shah, the Brunning, US hawks like Brzezinski and others, who held that if the Shah had used sufficient violence, he could have crushed the resistance. That's Khamenei's personal experiences. Maybe he agrees with it. the Israeli ambassador said that uh, de facto, it wasn't official, de facto Israeli ambassador, said that if the Shah was willing to kill 10,000 people in the streets, he could crush the resistance. Well, he didn't do it. But uh, the uh, people who've followed Khamenei's career suggest that this is part of his perception that if you move quickly to crush, opposition by force, you can get away with it. If you let things move on, you may lose control, as the Shah lost control. I don't know anything, I have nothing to add to this, just the comments that are made by people much more expert than I am. But I suspect that that kind of consideration is what's being discussed in the high clerical circles, where they run the the country. It's. very dangerous situation.
1: The esteemed newspaper of record, The New York Times, a front page story by David Sanger says, I'm quoting, a new era of direct confrontation with Iran has burst into the open. He quotes a Pentagon spokesman as saying, There's no diplomacy right now with respect to the Iran deal. Then Sanger approvingly quotes a representative from WINEP, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy a right-wing think tank in DC long aligned with Israel he quotes this representative saying in all fields the Iranian threat to international peace and security is greater today than it was 2 years ago
0: it's kind of a joke i mean a sick joke look iran We've just been through this, it's a terrible government, all kind of horrible things you can say about it. But the threat to peace and security is that it doesn't follow U.S.-Israeli orders. I mean, Israel is the threat to peace and security, the United States is the threat to peace and security, Iran is bad enough, but in comparison to Israel and the United States, barely uh, counts after all. The current breakdown in negotiations is over the renewal of an agreement that Washington destroyed. The joint agreement was functioning perfectly well, JCPOA, Iran was living up to it, US intelligence agencies agreed, Israel was strongly opposed to it, was carrying out murders, sabotage, terror to try to disrupt it. Uh, The Trump administration pulled out of it, destroyed it. Now we're saying Iran is a threat, negotiations aren't working. The negotiations are about whether to restore some form of the agreement that the United States destroyed, while Israel was undermining it with terror and violence. Well, now Israel's concerned that maybe some kind of agreement would be reached. And the current far right government in Israel has said if it is, we might have to bomb Iran. We might have to bomb Iran because an agreement might be reached. Everyone knows, but nobody will say something very simple. There's a very simple solution to whatever anyone thinks the Iran nuclear threat is, if you think there is such a thing. Trivial solution. Institute a nuclear weapons-free zone in the region, finished. Everybody's in favour of it, including Iran, Arab states, Global South, Europe, except for Israel and the United States. They're opposed to it, they block it, they undermine it. because. It would mean exposing to inspection the one nuclear state in the region. Israel has a huge nuclear arsenal. It doesn't publicly admit it. The United States refuses to publicly admit it, though, of course, everybody knows it. Uh, that's what's blocking a settlement. Can't talk about that, certainly not in the WNAP, the Washington Institute of Near East Peace basically part of the Israeli lobby. In fact, the New York Times came kind of close to this, to my surprise, a couple months ago. New York Times had an editorial saying, look, we got this great idea. We could settle the Iranian nuclear issue simply by calling for a nuclear war zone, meaning aimed at Iran but excluding Israel not a Middle East nuclear weapons-free zone, what the world wants. That's the level of discourse in the United States.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about uh, Israel and the return of Netanyahu to power. Uh, The new government in Tel Aviv is likely to move ahead on more West Bank annexation, control of water and settlement building.
0: There's a couple of really outstanding Israeli journalists, Amira Haas, Giron Levy, a couple of others. Giron Levy has regular, very important reports. One of them recently was an article in which he praised the Netanyahu government for its plans to put right-wing figures. Bezala Smotrich Itamar Ben Gvir Basically, followers of Rabbi Kahana, neo Nazi who was barred from Israeli politics because of his extremist program. These are his supporters. Ben Veer is probably going to be given the internal security uh, position. Smotrich will be given something important. Levy said, This is a great idea, it will pull aside the veil. It's an extreme right-wing, brutal, reactionary state, carrying out constant atrocities, much worse than the Gaza Strip, of course. Ironic article. I think he meant it. Well, that's the picture. And Israel is by now pretty much saying, we don't care. If you soft-hearted liberals don't like us, too bad for you. We'll join the most reactionary forces in the world, like the Abraham Accord, uh, Modi's India, and so on. And we'll go on our own way. Take your soft-hearted liberalism somewhere else. Well, there's a split developing, not only what's happening in Israel, but this will mean a break between Israel and the diaspora community, which has been their strongest support. They, the right wing in Israel says, we don't care. In fact, I think Netanyahu said it straight. He said, we've got the evangelicals. They're a much bigger group than American Jews. Okay, so let's just move far to the right. Stop the pretenses. Recognize we're racist, violent, murderous state, and uh, go our own way. None of your business. We want to bomb Iran, we'll bomb. We want to kill Arabs, we'll kill them.
1: Well, what did you think of the uh, recent um, assessment by Amnesty International that Israel was an apartheid state uh, joining, incidentally, um, Betselem, which is an Israeli human rights organization, and Human Rights Watch? Well, my own view
0: about that is somewhat more nuanced and has been for some time. But my feeling is that within Israel proper, which almost doesn't exist anymore. Most Israelis don't even, young ones, don't even know that there's a green line. They don't know there's a boundary, but there is an official boundary. Within the official boundary, I think Israel is repressive, but not at the level of apartheid. It's a harshly repressive state with two tiers of of citizens, Jews and non-Jews. It's bad enough, but it's not apartheid my opinion. On the other hand, in the occupied territories, I think it's worse than apartheid. Remember, South Africa needed its Black population. It wanted them to be internationally accepted. It supported the Bantustans, wanted them to gain international credibility. That was 85% of the population, was their workforce. Israel has a very different attitude toward the Palestinians in the occupied territories, wants to get rid of them, they don't belong here. The country promised to us by Abraham a couple thousand years ago, you're strangers in the land, get out, leave it to us. By now, leadership is saying it. In the past they didn't like to say it, it wasn't nice to say it, so you had various euphemisms. but. Uh, it's a very different picture. Israel wants to take over what's ever valuable in the occupied territories and if they can sort of marginalize or get rid of the population so much the better. It's not like South Africa, it's worse.
1: Turning to Brazil, where you happen to be right now, what are Lula's chances of being able to effectively govern? Um, why did the Peite Lula's party do so poorly. There were expectations that he and the PT would do very well vis-a-vis Bolsonaro. What happened there in your view? Well, first
0: of all, the PT did about as well as expected. The polls were pretty accurate on PT support within one or 2%, not a great variation. Uh, where they were inaccurate was on Bolsonaro support, and that's very much like the United States. Support for the far right is often concealed from pollsters. People just want to, don't want to say it. A large part of what they don't want to say it to pollsters is they just don't trust them. Remember, a large part of the far right in the United States and Brazil is essentially the MAGA crowd. We're the victims. We're the victims of uh, the left, which is trying to destroy the country, to replace us, the, the great replacement, the liberal, the uh, uh, leftists run everything. We're, we're the people who are being crushed. Now, we're not gonna to talk to you posters. We don't trust you. You come from institutions we don't trust. And that happened in Brazil too. I mean, all the details aren't out, but it looks as though support for Bolsonaro is, first of all, the huge evangelical community where he has overwhelming support, agribusiness and mining, which are destroying the Amazon, destroying all of us, strongly pro Bolsonaro. And that includes the poor people who live in those areas. For them, a lot of them, according to a few studies have been done just say we don't believe in global warming it's a it's a hoax we want our jobs cutting trees and uh, preparing for mining and so on so those areas went strongly for bolsonaro and also the southeastern regions the richer regions businesses and so on uh, they basically like the bolsonaro policies of racist uh, opposed to the poor, post the will, enriching them. Turns out that put all that together, it's, it's a lot of people. And they're it's like the MAGA crowd. They're they can be violent. In fact, there are demonstrations taking place right now. Trucker, truckers are an example, small businesses, you know, kind of petty bourgeois support. Uh, Bolsonaro himself has been completely silent. He disappeared after the elections. He appeared a couple of days ago for a few hours. It was the first time uh, they came along with this uh, frivolous claim that the electoral system was broken. That have to redo the election for press, just for president, not for anything else. Of course, the Supreme Court shot it down. But they may. We don't know what they're planning. They might be planning something on inauguration day. They've apparently got the same advisors that Trump had, same people, in fact. We don't know what they're planning. Could be, you can guess, to so will it be possible for Lula to govern at, at the administrative level. And uh, the big investors, the ones who really matter, they don't much like Bolsonaro, kind of like Trump. They may like the policies. But not the craziness. Uh, They'd rather have somebody around who can do their work for them, but not be so destructive, uh, aggressive, uh, mean spirited, uh, destroy the country. They don't want that. They want stability, investors. So the foreign investment community is not supportive of Bolsonaro. And uh, how this will pan out, we don't know. But I think it's going to be very hard for. Lula to do much. For one thing, he has a very reactionary parliament which is kind of like the United States again. What Biden tried to do was shut down by GOP.
1: Antonio Gramsci, the legendary Marxist, Italian Marxist writer and uh, editor and philosopher, he talked about something called morbid symptoms. Uh, You and I have talked about this in the past there's no shortage of them. If you look around today, eco-disasters, wars, famine and disease, and the rise of right-wing regimes, how do we overcome morbid symptoms?
0: Same way they were overcome when he wrote back in my early childhood, he was writing from a prison cell, early 30s, fight against it. It's the only way, no secret.
1: Well, I actually have one final question for you, uh, Noam, and that is, what's the secret to your longevity? You're turning 94.
0: The doctors wonder. It's certainly not my lifestyle. <laughs> I do exercises and all kind of healthy things. I never do them, but.
1: Wish you a very happy birthday. Oh, thank you. You were just listening to Noam Chomsky, Racing to the Precipice. I talked with him in late November, shortly before his 94th birthday. Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar activist, has been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent, progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Vijay Prashad, Chris Hedges, Arundhati Roy, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And since its inception, AR has made a special effort to record and archive Noam Chomsky's work. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Noam Chomsky, Racing to the Precipice, and for his books, Chronicles of Descent and Notes on Resistance, just call us one 800 That's one 800 1977 Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Yo is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening.